Oh, he's doing security, okay. Ross is a college graduate right there. Everybody look at Ross and say, whoa, way to go, Ross. All right. Well, if you are visiting with us this morning, I just want to say welcome. Uh, we're really glad that you're here. Um, our goal is to, is, is to be biblically measured as a church, and so we really try to continue to preach through books of the Bible. I'm excited this morning uh, because we're going to begin our study in Philippians. And um, I tell you to turn to Philippians this morning, we'll start there, but actually I want you to turn to Acts chapter 16, hold your place there, because it's really foundational to everything that Paul writes in Philippians. Um, as I've been praying and about what, what do we do next, um, we were considering Revelation, um, but right now I think what we need as a church is the encouragement that comes from Paul's letter here in the Philippians. Um, maybe more than any other book in the Bible, Philippians causes me to rejoice in the Lord um, in times when I really need it. Um, and it's encouraging to me when things are going well, but it's also encouraging to me when things aren't going well. And so, and, and when I go to encourage someone maybe who's, who's struggling, this is the first place that I go. Why? Why would I go to Philippians first? Because it's, it's written from the heart of a pastor's intimate relationship with his congregation. It's something, it's something beautiful. And as, you read, as we read the letter at the end of this message, I want you to really tune in and listen to Paul's heart for the church. Um, the beautiful thing about this letter is that it is, it's, it's simply Jesus. Jesus' name is mentioned over and over in this letter, and it's something beautiful. And I think it's also a reminder that we're, we're not alone in our struggles. Um, Paul's encouragement um, to the Philippians is to contend as one body, and I've chosen that as kind of the theme for this, for this book, contending as one. I took a New Testament course, and the professor, he used this theme of fighting as one. And I was like, well, that you know, I don't really want to use that. That doesn't sound very good. But contending as one sounds a lot better. Now, of course, if you understand, once we get into the Philippi and who was there, you'll understand why he used the term fighting. Um, it's a Roman colony and filled with ex-military. Um, and so he, the language in this book really is he's writing to, to ex-military people along with um, a whole community of, of um, servants and, and um, really a poor community. And so um, the truth of this letter from Paul, it's timeless. Um, and I think it's something that we should apply to our church, um, to our families, and to us as individuals. And so I'm excited to be a part of that. This morning, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you some background information. So this is going to kind of be a take notes or just write down. This is a lot of information. Um, and, and then I want to look at the city of Philippi, and I want to look at how the church started, and that's why you're in Acts chapter 16, and then I want us to finish the service by reading the letter. Now, you're thinking, wow, how are we going to get all that done? I don't know. We'll see. The Holy Spirit will direct us wherever we're going to go. So I want to start here. I want to start with Paul's second missionary journey, AD 4952. Um, see, Paul taught that that both Jews and Gentiles were reconciled by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from keeping the law. 
but certain Jewish Christians thought that the Gentile converts needed to keep all the Jewish laws. And so after having a lot of success on his first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas get invited to a meeting in Jerusalem. And you'll remember in Acts chapter 15, it's, it's the idea of the Jerusalem council. And, and as they were meeting, they were discussing this very matter of should the Gentile believers have to keep the law or be circumcised? And, and the council confirmed Paul's view of the gospel, and so Paul and Barnabas planned to revisit the churches they had planted to strengthen them and to confirm the message that salvation is by faith through grace and through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are some, however, who thought that rejecting the laws necessary for salvation would alienate Jewish converts. And so these Judaizers, these are the, these are the guys that Paul is referring to when he calls them mutilators of the flesh in this book. Um, they, were, they were always coming behind Paul and preaching or teaching something contrary to, to, to faith in Jesus Christ alone by grace. They always wanted to add a work um, to, the, to salvation. And so originally, you remember this, that, that Paul and Barnabas would go together on their second missionary journey. Remember that? The plan was, hey, we're going to go together. But Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. Remember what happened there? Remember that? Paul's like, nope, I don't want to take John Mark. He ditched us last time that we were in Pamphylia. Remember that? And so there was a dispute between, between Paul and Barnabas, and so they decided to part ways. And so Paul chose Silas. And then while they were in Lystra, you'll notice there, so they set out from Jerusalem, and they went north, and they came to the city of Lystra, and there they picked up a young promising disciple. You remember his name? Timothy. Yes, Timothy. Now, Timothy would then join their mission team. So now it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. He would join their mission team, and they, they would take off. And, and, and since Timothy was a half-Jew, um, Paul had him circumcised because of the Jews. And so they all set out together as a team, and their goal was to strengthen the churches. Now, Paul felt a burden in his heart. Remember this. He felt the burden to, to continue the work that he had started in Asia Minor. But the Holy Spirit, okay, there's a theme here. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go there. Remember that? So students, sometimes the Holy Spirit might not let you go. Never mind. It's lost. I'm trying to keep this lighthearted, but you guys are all very serious this morning. And I... Okay, hang with me. Hang with me. So, so the Holy Spirit permitted him. He wanted, so right up there, before he goes left, he wanted to go right. He wanted to go up into Bithynia and, and to Pontus. But the Holy Spirit prevented him from going there. And, and, and he had this vision. Remember the Macedonian call, the Macedonian vision? And that vision was to take the gospel into Macedonia. And so Paul, instead of, instead of going east, Paul ended up going west and ultimately north, and he ended up in, in Philippi, um, just 10 miles, miles north of Greece. Um, he landed at Neapolis, and before making their way north, about 10 miles to the city of Philippi. 
Now, the city of Philippi is interesting. You can put that next slide up. Philippi is named after Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great. Uh, the city was first established in 360 BC. This is kind of a, a recreation of the city at the time, um, and it was known for gold mining. Uh, when the Romans conquered the Anagoinid dynasty in 168, they divided the kingdom into to four states. And really, Philippi was nearly forgotten during that time until there was a famous battle of Philippi. You'll remember that um, the Romans liked to oppose each other. And so you had Antony and Brutus kind of against each other. There was a battle, and ultimately, Ant Antony's troops won. And so um, after the battle, Antony ordered the Roman soldiers to occupy the city. And then in 30 BC, Octavian forced some people in Italy to give up their homes and settle in places, including Philippi. Now, in, in return for their displacement, these residents were given special privileges, including the Italic Rite, um, meaning that they were treated as if their land were part of Italian soil. Um, and so, Philippi is considered a Roman colony. And, and, and literally, Philippi was intended to be a miniature version of Rome. This is all important because of what happens to Paul here in Acts 16. So bear with me, just setting this thing up. One of the things that's, that's neat about, uh, what was amazing about the Romans is that these guys could build roads. My goodness. And they built this road called the Via Ignatia. Uh, the Via Ignatia is, is, a, is a major trade route that was established that was an 800-mile road that stretched all the way from, from, from Italy all the way over to Asia. And it was a major trade route. And so Philippi was an outpost along that road. And, um, and there's probably some strategy in why Antony would want some of his troops left in Philippi you know, to guard, to guard the road. And so you have a lot of people coming through this city. And when you think about it, it makes sense that, that the Holy Spirit wouldn't permit Paul to head off into Asia, but instead to head to Philippi. The influence for the gospel was great there as people are always traveling that road. Well, when Paul showed up in Philippi, the population would have been estimated somewhere between 10 and, and 15,000. The vast majority of that population would have consisted of slaves, service providers, peasant farmers. Uh, most of them would have lived either at or below subsistence level. And with the grant of land to retired soldiers nearly 80 years before that we'd talked about, um, military veterans and their families would have comprised an important minority within the population. And they would have had this, the special influence among the elite within Philippi. And because of their pride and because of their allegiance to Rome and because this was little Rome or a little Roman colony, Roman law ruled within the walls of Philippi. But outside of the, the city, it's free, <laughs> fair game. There's still a lot of Hellenistic Greek influence in that area. Now, religiously, Philippi is, is a typical first century city. There are a large number of gods that are worshipped. Uh, one particular area that deserves mention is the possible presence of the imperial cult uh, in which the emperor was worshipped as a god. Um, the fact that 
Caesar's claim to be Lord and Savior, who brings salvation and peace to the world, would have been widely known throughout the Roman Empire, and particularly in, with this Roman colony. And you'll remember when we studied that a couple of Christmases ago, we talked about this and about how Caesar was worshipped as God. He was the salvation, the, the God of salvation that would bring peace. And, and Rome was enjoying a sense of Pax Romana at the moment. Uh, because the city's a military outpost, there aren't a lot of Jews there. Um, in fact, there aren't even enough Jews to establish a Jewish synagogue, which takes 10 men. And so the Romans were, were known for being anti-Semitic, and at the same time that Paul was arriving there, the emperor had declared Judaism as a superstition and had all the Jews expelled from Rome. And so when Paul arrives, he found a handful of people gathered outside the city at the Gangites River for prayer. And that's where I want us to pick up then in Acts chapter 16. You guys are still awake, right? Did you get all that? Did you take good notes? We're going to have a test next week, written test. Yeah. All right. So Acts chapter 16, this is the fascinating part to me, is, is the, beauty, the, the establishment of this church. And so this is 10 years earlier than, than the letter written to the Philippians. Okay, and we'll begin with verse 11. And it says, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. And so, as, as often happens in Paul's ministry, Paul shows up in town, and Paul immediately, what does he do? He goes and he finds people of, people of peace, and he starts sharing the gospel. And this, this lady named Lydia, she responds to the gospel. Now, Lydia, a dealer of fine purple cloth, she would have been a wealthy businesswoman. Um, this is, and so, first convert, wealthy businesswoman, Lydia. Let's continue in the story. So, once when we're going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. The girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you to, the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to, to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. And when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for, Roman citizens, for us Romans to accept and to practice. And there's that influence of, of, of a Roman colony 
of little Rome here. These things are unacceptable for us to practice. And so pretty soon the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to him. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains were loose. The jailer woke up and when, the, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. And so here we see Paul's second convert. So we have, we have a wealthy businesswoman, and we have a Roman jailer. And remember, the Romans, they're influential. And here, here's this jailer receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the beginning, this is the beginning of the church. Think about it. Think about, think about the earthquake that took place. Such a pointed earthquake that the chains of the prisoners literally fell off of their wrists. Does it remind you of any other earthquakes that we've just studied recently? Didn't we just talk about this a couple weeks ago? Come on. Did we? At Easter? Did Gus not mention that in his message? What happened? The angel of the Lord came, and the earth quaked, and the stone was rolled away. Don't you imagine that the angels are involved right here with Paul and Silas, here in Philippi as this church is beginning? Earthquake happens, chains fall off, and everyone's here. And the jailer gives his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's baptized. That's the beginning of this church. And who knows what happens to the slave girl? Maybe she gives her life to Christ as well. Who knows, once that, that spirit is cast out of her, what happens to the, to the slave girl? Here's this group of, this, big, this beginning of a church. And so Paul then, to pick up the story here in verse 35, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officer, officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas serve, be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. Here's Roman law. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want us to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. See, you don't treat your people that way. Everybody gets a fair trial in Roman law. 
if you're a Roman citizen. (laughs) They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them, and then they left. I think this is important, um, that this church began with a strong presence of God. Can you imagine what would have gone through that town of 10,000 people when they found out this, this earthquake had opened up the chains of the prisoners and that all the prisoners stayed there? Imagine the testimony and the witness to, to Paul's God. Suddenly, Paul's God has to be considered. I mean, even Romans, you know, would look, who looked for any God to worship would have had to consider Paul's God. And so we see the beginning of the church here established by the power of the Holy Spirit. And imagine what these people telling these stories about what, what God had done in their midst. And so now we come 10 years later and Paul finds himself in prison in Rome um, during the reign of Nero. And we think that Paul's letter to the Philippians is somewhere around 61. There are some other ideas. Maybe it was written from Ephesus a little bit earlier. Um, but when the Philippian church heard that Paul was in prison in Rome, they encouraged him. They encouraged him. They sent Epaphroditus, likely and possibly the pastor of their church, along with a financial gift to meet the needs of Paul. The Philippian Christians were Paul's most loyal supporters, if you'll remember. They're the only ones, and Paul will write this in his letter, we'll hear it just in just a second, they're the only ones that, that shared in his ministry financially. And during several other times when Paul needed help financially, the Philippians were the ones to give. And so this is a, this is a beautiful church, and this letter that we're going to read today, it's his response to their gifts. It's a thank you letter. I find that um, why would we study this letter encouragement, to encourage your hearts to find joy in difficult times. I think it's a, it reveals Paul's intimate relationship with the church. And I think it also, he's encouraging the church to work together, contend as one for the gospel. I believe that one of the key verses in Philippians chapter 1 is, is verse 27. He says this, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And so, let's turn to Philippians. I just want to share this letter with you. I think it's important. How many of you have ever ever taken the book of Philippians and just read it out loud all at one time, read the whole letter out loud at once? Two, three, four. Four of you. Oh, you guys are in for a treat. You're in for a treat. All right, here we go. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I wouldn't put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus." who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go for me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for you, to, for the help you could not give me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and, I, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and it is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us, called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
All of us who are mature should take a view of such things. And if any one of you, and if, if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the case of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who strengthens me, who gives me strength. Yet, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus, the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for these words, Lord. We thank you, God, for your word, its truth. We thank you, Father, that these words, God, are an encouragement to us, Lord. Time and time again, God, we've memorized many of these words. Father, and they come to our minds, Lord, when we, when we need them. 
They come to our minds when we're rejoicing, God. They come to our, our minds when we're sad, God. We bring our anxious thoughts, God, to you, and we, we entrust them to you. We lay them at your feet, God, and you bring us peace, Lord. There's no one like you, Jesus. Father, I pray, God, that as we study this book, Lord, God, that, uh, Lord, you would speak, God, to our hearts. Father, just like Paul was speaking to, to this church, this beautiful church at Philippi, God, would you speak to this beautiful church here in Grimes, Iowa, God? Lord, thank you that your word is timeless, God, that it has authority across all time, God. It doesn't matter if we're in 2019 AD, God, you're still going to speak, God, to us, and so we're excited about that. We, Spirit, Holy Spirit, we just give you permission, God, to bring, bring joy to our hearts, God, as we study this. Father, there's no one besides you, Lord. We love you, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and we worship you. Amen. All God's people said, amen. I want to invite you to stand and let's worship.